Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Well, good morning. Please stay standed. Please stay standed as we read the scripture together in honor of his word. It comes from Matthew chapter 22. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out the other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their own ways, one to his own farm, another to his own business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways and as many as you find invite to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how do you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into utter darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. You be seated. I have my wedding invitation here. This was over 10, about 10 years ago when we created this, over 10 years ago. I remember creating this wedding invitation, thinking about the types of people we were going to invite to our wedding. The first category is people that are friends and family that we dearly loved and we really wish would come to our wedding. That was like the first category of people. The second category of people that we invited were people that we wanted to invite, but we weren't sure we're going to make it. We wanted them there, but whether it's because they lived eight or 10 hours away, whatever it might be, we weren't sure if they were going to be able to make it. There was going to be a value call there on their part, right? When you get that, am I going to drive 10 hours to go to this wedding? But there was people that we wanted to show up, but we weren't sure if they were going to. And then there was a third category of people, of people we did not want to show up at the wedding, but we wanted them to send a gift. All right, you know what I'm talking about? That category of people. Listen, you can judge me all you want. You know you did the same, okay, if you're married in here. All right, it's people that you just, hey, it's better off if they don't show up, but you know what? They'll send a gift card. It's it's great. So I remember walking through this, and now when I receive a wedding invitation, I have to make a value call. So if I get it in the mail, I'm looking at it, I ask a couple things. Who are they? That's the most important, right? Who are the people? Am I really invested in their life? Is it important for me to be there? The second is like distance. Okay, how far is this wedding? There's a way in which we all look at the invitations that we receive and we ask specific questions about it to see if we are going to go to the wedding or not going to the wedding. 
Today, what we're going to look at is four responses to the invitation that God gives. We're looking at this king who invites all these different people to the wedding of his son. And what we're going to see is that there's four different ways that people respond to this invitation. But before we jump in and look at each person specifically, we need to go about 30,000 foot for a second. And we need to look at this because it is a parable. Parables are stories that Jesus teaches to give us a moral principle or a Christian principle to apply to our lives. And so sometimes it's better not to really get into the weeds a little bit. It's better to look at it broader first and then kind of work your way down so you don't miss the main point of the parable. And so there's really two major themes that are at play here. The first is this, God's unrelenting love to humanity. We see from the very beginning of this text that the king sends out his servants to call all those who were invited. So there's a group of people who were invited first. This mirrors the second theme that we see throughout all of scripture that God had a chosen people in the Old Testament and now there's a Gentile inclusion. Now there's an invitation we'll see to others. But what was first offered, what we see what happens, well, some of them reject that message. We see this peril that's playing there. And when we see the kingdom of God here, it's always referencing when we look in the parables, when we look at scripture, when we think about like the kingdom of God is is a uh, treasure hidden in a field. When we think about all these different things that talk about the kingdom of God, they're talking about being united with God. And so when we get to this passage and there's an invitation going out for this wedding feast, the marriage supper of the lamb. What we see is it's an invitation to come into a relationship with God. And that this invitation we see not only goes out to those that was first given to, but it continues to go out to everyone. It says it goes out to the good and the bad. There's this universal invitation to all people. To come to the Lord. It reminds me of 1 Peter 3 when it talks about how the Lord is not slow on his promises, but is patient towards you, wishing that none shall perish, but all shall come to repentance. That there's this invitation to all people. And he sends servant after servant after servant. We see throughout the Christian history, he sent prophet after prophet after prophet. And finally, he God sends his son who is killed. Even the son of God is killed. The message rejected until three days later, he rises from the grave. And we just declared in the apostles creed, proving himself to be the one that rightfully gets to sit at the right hand of God. And so when we look at this passage, we have to remember that this invitation that God gives still goes out today. We are still called as his people to go out and give this invitation to those that we are around. But this passage also has a saddening theme to it. It's a saddened theme. The fact that out of all four responses, three of them are negative and only one is positive. 
What this passage is going to show us is that as much as God loves humanity and is there and is pursuing humanity, most people will reject that invitation. It should sadden us as followers of Jesus when we think about that reality. So as we look through this passage this morning, we're going to look at four ways people respond to this invitation and how it applies to our life. The first one is a person who doesn't value or prioritize the kingdom of God. They don't prioritize this relationship with God. We see in the very beginning here that God or the king sends out his servants, but they're not willing to come in. And verse five tells us they made light of it and went their own ways to their farm and another to another business. They didn't see it as valuable. And so they decided that it wasn't worth going to the the feast. Their time, their attention, the things that they needed to get done was more valuable and was more of a priority than going to this feast that the king had prepared. A couple years ago, this was probably about 10 years ago, I was talking with a father who was concerned because his son was not growing in his faith. And I love that when parents are engaged in their kids' lives. And I said, well, you're in and out on Sundays. They had some sports things and some family things. So you're in and out. I said, well, what are you doing throughout the week to kind of help supplement some of that? Like, what are you doing to help encourage some of that spiritual growth? And he said, well, here's an average day for us at our house. I get home from work. We spend two hours practicing baseball. We eat dinner. He does his homework, and then we go to bed. That was their routine every night of the week. And it was simple. I just shared with him, you have a priority problem. If we don't make following Christ a priority, we will never choose the kingdom of God. There will always be something else that is more important Always something else that can take up our time. And so the first person looks at this invitation to this relationship with God and just says, it's not a priority. It's not worth sacrificing the things that I want to do in order to go to the feast. And ultimately, that's what this teaches us. That Christians need to ask the question, is God worth sacrificing for? If Jesus isn't seen as our priority, then he won't be worth sacrificing anything for. Just think about this. It's no wonder that Christians have a hard time with self-control, gentleness, kindness, peace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit, when they don't value or don't see it as worthy to sacrifice. Because think about this. Every fruit of the Spirit requires a sacrifice. If you want to grow in self-control, what does that mean? You have to sacrifice your wants, your desires. Why? So you can do what God wants and what he desires. Every time you have to practice gentleness, you have to sacrifice getting your way and saying the things that you really want to say. When you have to be kind, 
What is the sacrifice? It's normally wanting to be mean and you are choosing to be kind. Every fruit of the spirit, every character forming thing that God desires for the Christian requires sacrifice. And if we don't think he is worth sacrificing for, we will not grow. Those that don't see God as a sacrifice, worthy of sacrificing for, don't regard, as Matthew 13 tells us, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. When a man has found it, he hid it again. And with all this joy, he went and sold all that he had. Or like the merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one great va- of great value, he went away and sold everything that he had and bought it. If we don't see the kingdom of God as worth sacrificing for, it's as if we are doing what this person is doing. The invitation comes in, but we don't value it enough to actually partake. The second type of person and response we see here is a person who responds to the invitation with disdain. In verse 6, it tells us that the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. So there's a group of people that we can expect that when the invitation goes out, they will act negatively to that and they will persecute. This is an expectation of what we should see. And this, for us, is important because this can actually be in a moment a positive thing for the Christian. And you're thinking, how can this be positive? Well, it forces us not only to ask, is this sacrifice, or is this something I'm worth sacrificing for? But am I really counting the cost of what it means to be a Christian? There's an article that was written recently about the way that our culture sees Christianity within the world, in particular within the United States. And they talk about three different ways that the culture sees Christianity. The first was before 1994, which was called the positive world. And this positive view of Christianity meant that if you were an upstanding citizen, it was likely that you were a church-going person and that Christian moral norms were basic for society. In the neutral world, which happened between 1994 and 2014, They saw that Christianity really no longer provided any privilege, but it also didn't make you look negative in the sight of the culture. You were just neutral. It was still a valid option in the public square. But according to this research, from 2014 afterwards, there was a switch in our culture, and now society has come to view a negative view of Christianity where now Christians and their moral views violate secular moral order or moral views. Now this is why it's important for us. If we haven't trained ourselves and the next generation of Christians that Jesus is worth sacrificing for and it's worth cost, like that we've considered the cost of following Jesus. In 30 years from now, when there's any type of pressure on their relationship with God, they will run the other way. Why? Because they haven't learned to treat it like a treasure in a field. We haven't learned how to count the cost as followers of Jesus. And I'm gonna go on a side note for a second. 
a part of this culture changing, what I've seen is two types of responses, but I want to focus on one. It's a response to wish that our culture was like the good old days. It's a response to the culture that lashes out, that lashes out at people that are different than us, that think differently than us. It's about a culture that wants to respond aggressively to the changing of the tide. And can I posit this for a moment? That that's not the way we should handle it. Scripture tells us here right after this that the king hears about all these people getting murdered, his servants. And it tells us that the king is the one who brings about justice, not us. We are not the ones that have to lash out at culture. Ultimately, we have confidence because Christ, he reigns with God the Father. The Spirit is moving in our world and we can have confidence in who God is. That he will administer justice. And instead of being anxious and afraid about where this culture is going. And by the way, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned. We should. But instead of lashing out at those things, Christians should take it as an opportunity for us to show the faithfulness, love, and joy that God has given every Christian. In this world that seems to lack joy, lack faithfulness, and lack all the fruit of the Spirit. When we count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, we lay down all of the things inside of us that want to take control of the situation. And when we allow God to do it. But not only that, when we look at ways that Christianity expands throughout history. It's oftentimes in the moments where Christians are persecuted and seen in a negative light, where real Christian flourishing happens. See, Christian flourishing may happen a thousand feet wide and one inch deep in moments where Christianity is favorable in culture. But when Christianity is looked at in a negative light, While we don't grow a thousand feet wide, we grow 10 feet deep. And I want to posit to you that this is a good thing for you. We don't have to look at the tides turning in our culture and be afraid. We can look at it as an opportunity for us to grow deeper in our relationship with God. Expecting that people are going to respond in this way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this about Costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all of his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which we, which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. 
It is costly because it condemns sin and it is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And what God asks us to do is to embody that incarnation in our own lives. As a follower of Jesus, we are supposed to do that. Count it. Count your relationship. Think about what it might cost you to follow Jesus and be committed in the midst of a society where invitation is rejected through persecution. But then we see this transition in our text. The king administers justice, and then he tells his servants to go everywhere, find every single person that you are to find, invite them to this wedding so that my hall is filled. And we get this in verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And he says to him, friend, how do you come in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him out into utter darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. The third type of response is a person who exhibits signs of non-saving faith by the way of self-righteousness or apathy. Let me kind of describe this to you. Let's just say for a moment, I sent you my wedding invitation also, we got married like on a farm plantation type of thing, but let's just for all, you know, we're making this up. So the Biltmore, so we get to the Biltmore and have our wedding there. We were just there this past weekend. It cost $20,000 to have your wedding there. Okay. So let's just imagine for a moment, Amber and I are getting at the, getting married at the Biltmore. Okay. And we invite you and on the invitation, it says wear black tie, right? So it's like fancy stuff. This is the Biltmore. It's got to be fancy. By the way, I think Hallmark has a movie coming out tonight about the Biltmore. Um, but that's besides the point. You know, anyways. So imagine for a moment, we say, hey, you're going to be invited to the Biltmore. You have to dress up. You get this invitation in front of you and you say, yeah, I really don't want to dress up for this thing. I'm going to wear my, my comfy clothes. So for me, for Pastor John, my comfy clothes, if you see me outside of church, is athletic pants, hoodie with Crocs, okay? That is what I like. Crocs are the best. They're the most comfortable things in the world, okay? So here's the deal. That is what I enjoy. What if I got this invitation and you got this invitation and you said, no, I think I'm going to wear my Crocs to this wedding. I'm going to roll up in my hoodie, my athletic pants, You would say either you're prideful and don't think that you have to abide by their request or you're going to say you just don't care. Those are the two options. And so when we get to this wedding feast, there is this, there's this idea that when you go, you are to wear the wedding garment. And without, within church history, there's been two ways to look at this garment. One is the righteousness of Christ. So this wedding garment is you putting on the very thing that God came for you, uh, came to do, putting on his righteousness on your behalf. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You're accepting that wedding garment that he is giving you to go into this wedding. And this man in particular, for some reason decides, yeah, I don't want to put it on. 
The other way to look at this is someone who is invited, they accept the invitation, but they're just not really in it. They don't really want to be there. They showed up and they care so little about this event that they don't put on the wedding garment. So one chooses to not put on the wedding garment because they're too proud. They shouldn't have to wear it while the other does it because they just don't care. Both of which, by the way, want all the benefits of Christ, but they don't want Christ himself. They want the benefits of the wedding, but they really don't want to be there present with the king and his son. J.C. Ryle puts it like this, the unerring eye of God will discern who are his own people and who are not. Nothing but true faith shall abide in the fire of his judgment. All spurious Christianity shall be weighed in the balance and found lacking. None but true believers shall sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It shall avail the hypocrite nothing that he has been a loud talker about religion and had the reputation of being an imminent Christian among men. His triumphing shall be before a moment because he shall be stripped of all of his borrowed plumage and stand naked and shivering before the bar of God, speechless, self-condemned, helpless, hopeless and helpless. Likewise, Augustine says this, so then have faith with love. This is the wedding garment. Ye who are in Christ, or, or ye who love Christ, love one another, love your friends, love your enemies. Let this not be hard to you. The idea between these two is looking at this text and saying the wedding garment, what it represents is the righteousness of God but it should also be accompanied with works. It's like James who says, if you have a faith that's not producing works, you should be concerned because that faith might be dead. And that's the reality here. There are a group of people who are invited to this wedding who will show up at either they're prideful or they're lazy and neither of those work. Because it shows that you haven't accepted Christ's righteousness on your behalf. Or it shows that you just don't care. And that's the reality behind this passage. It is a very sad one. Because what this text tells us is that this universal invitation that goes out. Most people will respond in these ways. They either will not value it. They will be antagonistic towards it, or they may accept a part of it, but not really worthy, or not really counting it worth giving their life over to. And they'll respond in self-righteousness or apathy. But there's a fourth person here, and it's a silent person. It's a person that doesn't get much recognition except for that the hall was filled with these types of people. It tells us here that when God sends his servants out after he's rejected, they go out and they invite all the people that were far off, all the people that don't deserve to be there. He goes and he invites the people as other wedding feast parables tell us are the lame, right? They're the downhearted. They're the ones that were looked down on society and that's the people that they're inviting in. It's the type of people that when they show up to this king's feast, they sit there thinking, I did nothing to earn my place here at the king's table. It's only by the grace of God that I was sent an invitation and I was able to go. It is the type of person who sees this and is excited to be there. Why? Because they shouldn't be there. 
That's the fourth response here. And this is the response for us. Those who humbly receive the invitation of the king. And it's truly astonishing that he would invite any of us to this feast. I heard this sermon illustration by Tim Keller that I wanted to share with you. It was about a man named Mardu McDonald. Talk about a name. He was Scottish and he was a prisoner of war in World War II. And the prison camp he was in had two sides divided by a gate. One side you had the Americans where Mardu was being held captive with the Americans. On the other side you had the British and he found out just recently getting there that there was another Scottish man that was on the other side of the camp. And so they were allowed to meet for a couple minutes every day in the middle to talk to people. And they realized that the guards didn't, the guards knew German, they knew English, and they knew French, but they didn't know Gaelic. And so the Scottish, these two Scots, would talk back and forth in Gaelic. Now, the beauty of it is that the guards didn't know that the Americans had an improvised radio that they didn't know about. So they were receiving information from the outside. And so every day he would walk up to this fence and he would relay all the news to the other side of the camp in Gaelic. Well, one day he walks up to the fence. He talks to this other uh, Scottishman and he says, Germany surrendered. The war is over. The war is done. The greatest news that these men could have heard. And the Scottishman walks excitedly, but nothing to give anything away into the British barracks. And then a few seconds later, it goes an uproar. Everyone's excited and the guards have no idea what's going on. But it would be four days later until they would be freed. Now here's what's interesting about this story. Mardu McDonald recounts that for the next four days, even though while they were in captivity, they walked taller They smiled at the guards. They didn't complain about the food. They had been delivered even though their captivity was still present. They were so joyous even in the midst of trouble. Why? Because deliverance did not come four days later when finally the Germans opened up the uh, the cells. Deliverance came when the good news came that the war was over. And for the Christian, that is our good news. That even though we live in this world, even though we experience these things, we should have the most joy. Why? Because we have the good news that even though we live here in these circumstances that are always going to pale in comparison to what we have in future glory, we have a joy that we've already been delivered. And that's the point. This wedding feast that God wants to bring people into is for everybody. Some will reject it, but for those of us who understand that we don't even begin, we don't even, we shouldn't even be invited to begin with, but it's by the grace of God that we get to be there. We should have the most joy. So when we look at this culture and what's happening, we don't need to go and raise our pitchforks. We get to be joyful because it's already one. We can be grateful and thankful and live out our faith in love and humility. Some of you this morning, when I talk about the invitation, you're in one of four categories. Either you're sitting here and you haven't ever accepted the invitation of God to his kingdom. You've heard about it, but maybe you valued other things prior or more before 
the kingdom of God. The second group, you may actually be upset at God because of something that's happened in your life. And you're responding in that way. For others of you in this room, you may have accepted the invitation, but either because of self-righteousness or apathy, you are finding yourself really without the garment of God on your life. Because you're trusting in yourself or you really don't care about what God has to offer. You want Christ, but none. You want the benefits of Christ, but not Christ himself. But this is also applicable for us because some of you have lacked the joy of what it means to be delivered. And for us as Christians, we should be the most joyous people on the planet. And I'm talking to myself here because I can allow all sorts of things to bring down my joy when in fact we should be the most excited people for what God is going to do and will do when we're faithful. Now, bringing this from a closer in, there's some of you that experience these three things or these four ways when it comes just to reading the scriptures. And here's what I mean by this. When we read the scriptures and we're convicted about something, we either are going to respond in, I don't value it. I'm going to do what I want instead. We can respond by saying, I hate that. Don't want to do that. We can respond to it by saying, I'll accept half of it, but I'm not going to accept all of it. Or as Christians, we can look at the scriptures and say, It's worthy of sacrificing for God's kingdom, his will, his way, not my will be done. And that's the disposition of a Christian. John Chrysostom was an early church father and he wrote and on another sermon, but he wrote something about Thanksgiving. And I thought it was fitting to finish this way because we just celebrated Thanksgiving and what Christians can be the most thankful for. And I want to read this because this is really my heartbeat for our church. And what I really believe that our church represents. And I want us to imagine for a moment, if we were to take his words, which I'm about to read and apply them whole scale in our church, the massive difference that we can make in each other's lives, but also Lebanon and abroad. I want you to imagine a church that takes seriously the thankfulness that we should have for God and the joy that we should be experiencing. He writes this, let us then give thanks that we belong to them that are being saved and not having been able to do it to save ourselves by works. No, we were saved by the gift of God. But in giving thanks, Let us not do this in words only, but in works and in actions. For this is genuine thanksgiving. When we do those things, God is sure to be glorified. And we are to flee from those things which we have been set free. Imagine a moment if we were a people who fled the things that we've been freed from We embrace the things that God glorifies in and we are truly thankful and joyous because we don't belong in the wedding, but God invited us there and we're just grateful to be there. Imagine if we live that way, how much that would radically change not only this church, but change our society 
Imagine what the world will say when they see a group of people that aren't raising their pitchforks, but are loving and are joyous and are gracious just to be a part of the party. I really believe that's what God is calling us to do in the life we're called to live. Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Lord, it is truly a humbling thing to know that none of us deserve this invitation. And yet you offered this to those that were unworthy. But God, you've given us the wedding garment to put on. Your son's sacrifice on the cross for us so that we can come to this wedding feast and partake. Lord, help us to check ourselves and our motives. Help us to know whether or not we are going to this party prideful or apathetic. Lord, convict us when we have chosen something else over you. God, forgive us when we have put value on other things than the kingdom of God. But Lord, I pray that we would find ourselves humbled, giving thanks, showing that out in works and in actions because genuine thanksgiving glorifies God and flees from the things that we've already been set free from. Thank you, Lord. Would you say my prayer? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.